when I think about that statement, leadership without losing your soul, and I know this is going to sound kind of simple, but I think it just means that you can be an effective leader and also a decent human being. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul, your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to another episode. I am thrilled at our guest today. This is the third part in our series on how to partner best with your human resources, your OD, your learning and development teams. And we've got an incredible guest for you today. L. Mark Charles is the Director of Inclusive Culture for Belden Corporation. Karen and I have worked with with you, Elle. Gosh, it's been about six, seven months now that we've been in a uh, relationship and, and some of the work that we've been doing together, leadership development. And uh, just as I've gotten to know you and your level of expertise and some of the depth of wisdom and, and career that you've got, uh, I know that you've got some great things to share with our listeners today. So thank you for being a part of, of the show, of joining us here today on Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And thank you so much for having me. I, I really appreciate the invite. Well, it's, it's a pleasure to have you here. So I, I want to ask you to take us back to your first memory of yourself as a leader, wherever, whatever that might be. Wow. You know, when I think about my early days as a leader, I am both horrified and grateful <laughs> about my experiences and my growth. To be transparent, I was a tyrant. I was really caring about performance and, and I was great um, at performance, but I knew nothing about people or engagement. And those are your earliest memories. Those are my earliest memories. Yes. Of being a tyrant. Yes. It shaped me as, as a leader. And I'm so glad that I had all of those lessons early because it made the road a lot easier for me as I continued my development. It forced me into development as a leader. Is there a particular moment? Uh, I'm sure there are many, but is there a particular moment you recall of that journey or where the light bulb went? Oh, yeah. So I, I fell literally. Um, (laughs) I, I was of course in one of my moods and I was quote unquote, coaching my team. I was yelling at them and I'm stomping around and I went down a flight of stairs. Somehow I I think I miscounted and I tumbled suit, heels, earrings, everything. And the, the moment where I knew something was wrong was that people didn't rush to help. It was absolutely horrifying. Oh my Um, goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and that really changed things for me. That was the first time I picked up a book by Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a wake up moment for you. It was a major wake up moment for me. Wow. So you literally took a tumble. It wasn't a metaphor. Was... Well, it was metaphoric, but it was a real deal. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It wow. was, um, it taught me that there was so much more to just trying to hit the number, trying to, you know, achieve that bottom line that you have to put your people first because they remember how you make them feel. You know, it answers the question of, hey, why do you guys only perform when I'm here? Mm -hmm. 
it just really brought so many things to light. So as embarrassing and humiliating as that experience was, I'm glad it happened. Wow. Painful and yet massive opportunity there. That may be a great segue into the question I'd like to ask you next, which is, so the name of the show is Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. And I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, when you see leaders losing their soul, what does that mean to you? And why do you think it happens? When I think about that question and that statement, leadership without losing your soul, and I know this is going to sound kind of simple, but I think it just means that you can be an effective leader and also a decent human being. I get baffled sometimes when, you know, I'll spend time with a leader outside of work. And I know that this person is perceived as a poor leader and they're a completely different person when they step outside of the office. So I I think maybe we've been conditioned to be subhuman when we walk into the workplace and we have all these expectations instead of agreements, like, like you taught me before. I, I think that it's, I think that it has somehow conditioned us in the wrong direction. Mm. Is that from your own experience of being the person that they didn't want to help when you fell, would you say that that was part of it? Was there a misalignment for you of who you were outside of, of your leadership role versus inside it? And was that a result of pressure or what would you attribute that to? Yeah, I was in a very high pressure boiler room type environment. So outside of work, I was fun loving and I used to race cars. And I, I mean, I had an amazing time, but the moment I stepped in the office, it was showtime. Mm. And I had to, I felt like at the time, because I was so young, in order to gain respect, I had to be a certain way and I had to portray a certain maturity and, you know, and demand respect and trust and, (laughs) you know, and it just completely, it completely backfired. Oh, powerful. I have been there. (laughs) I remember (laughs) you've, you've reminded me of several times in my career where I was bound and determined to impress somebody. Mm-hmm. And, and pretty much any time I am determined to impress anybody in my life in any capacity, that's a guaranteed misfire. <laughs> yep. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you for that vulnerability. I appreciate you sharing that with us because I think we can all relate in some different level, whether we've, we've had the physical fall or not. We certainly all have those missteps and we hopefully learn from them. So you are a different person now. You're no longer that leader anymore. Now, you know, you're in this role. Can you tell us about your current role um, at Belden and the work that you're doing? And what is it you love most about what you're doing? So the work that I'm doing, you know, in inclusive culture. So I'm helping the organization build that inclusive environment globally. You think about the awareness and the tough conversations and that five-year roadmap, and its purpose is to better our communities. So this is a it's a different role for me, in terms of you know still having the scope within HR, but this is it's an entirely different type of reach, and I think I love it so much because it's way bigger than me. And, and I've, I've never really viewed my role 
as being a role where there's so much at stake. And the work we do is, and I, when I say we, I mean anyone who is doing DNI or inclusive culture, but we're, we're supporting the needed change for equality and social justice. So I'm, I'm really proud to be a part of it. Awesome. Well, that's impressive. I mean, and, and doing that globally has to have a different, similar, but different maybe for somebody who's focused just domestically in the U.S. And talk to us about that. What does that look like? What are some of the things you need to be thinking about? Yeah. When I, when I first walked into this, I thought, the U.S. has their issues, and then Germany's going to have theirs. The U.K. will have theirs. And what I'm finding out is that the U.S. collects data, whereas other countries don't collect the same data. There are just different laws. However, the awareness of some of the same struggles that we have in the U.S., it's happening in those other countries. So even though they don't have the supporting data, they're talking about it a lot. Things like like race and discrimination and LGBTQ and all of those subjects are coming up today, whereas previously those were considered U.S. issues. I'm finding it really interesting how these other countries are going about bringing awareness without necessarily having the, the census data to back it. Mm, mm, that's interesting. And I have had similar experiences working with our global clients in terms of the shared awareness. And, and like you say, the flavor and, and interpret the details differ country by country, but the shared awareness of the importance of recognizing our common humanity and coming together in that and embracing all of the different elements that we all bring to the table in, in positive ways and leveraging all of that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, there seems to be dawning awareness of just how important that is around the world. It is. And, you know, I I shared with a team just last week that when you look at globally and where women are in leadership, we are still only 29% female representation Mm. at the executive level, level globally. And when you look at you know, the number of college students that are women and the number of women in the workplace, those numbers and, and the disparity between that and, and males, it's, it's so shocking. But this is, this is the type of awareness that we need. And these are the types of conversations that we need to have on a global scale. Unless anybody think that that's just a numbers game, there are really pragmatic outcomes of all that. I mean, I just saw some data just a day or two ago talking about the difference. Here's something very practical. The Mm -hmm. difference in the efficacy of COVID vaccination rollouts in countries that have a female executive leader versus male. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And they're better, by the way, (laughs) strikingly better. (laughs) Now, you know, is correlation causation, I mean, you can get into all the rest, but like come on, we're missing the boat if we're not leveraging all of our humanity. Yeah. So, wow, it's important work. So I'm curious as as we have this conversation about how leaders can best partner with their HROD, L&D teams. And so you've got experience in all of that realm to bring to bear. So we can talk about that, but we can also bring your specific role now in terms of building inclusivity mm-hmm. um, into the conversation. I'm, I'm curious, let's, let's start with mistakes. What are some of the mistakes that you see leaders and managers making 
with regard to how they're working with or not working with their, their HR partners? One of the common mistakes that I see is connecting with HR only when something's gone wrong after the fact, and you end up having this reactive relationship. So I, I think that's probably the number one thing. And the other thing that I see is it's the assumption that HR professionals are only that transactional and tactical day-to-day function. And I think what, what a lot of the leaders are, are not recognizing is when you get to a certain level in HR, so you have your leaders and your business partners, we're conditioned to align people with the needs of the business. Whatever your mission, whatever your vision is, we can help you and we have a holistic approach to it. So being able to engage, you know, outside of the fire drills, that's, that's where the relationship, that's where the productivity really comes alive when, when you talk about engagement. Uh, yeah, the first uh, uh, person in our series here uh, about partnering with HR, she said, you know, build the relationship build the relationship, invest in that relationship really, because there's so much value that, that they, that we can bring to the work that you're doing if we know, but if we don't know, and she said, that's incumbent on both of us, right? It's, it's, I need to do that as an HR leader. And you need to do that as a manager leader in the work that you're doing. And if we'll build that relationship, there's so much opportunity there for us. So yeah, don't just wait till the fire drill. Yeah. Yeah. And I blamed myself also. And I, just being transparent, I was so exhausted once with, with a leader and I really enjoyed working with the leader, but it just got to a point where I thought, okay, this person is just not going to have those regular meetings. And, and this person is so busy and they don't quite see the value. And so it was, it was really difficult trying to, to get in there and it never failed. I would get a phone call and it's, hey, can we have a one-on-one? Sure, no problem. And I'd get a laundry list, just all these things that happen and all these deadlines and here's what we need fixed. And, this, and I thought, wow, we've, we have to restructure this relationship. We, just, we have to build our communication and, and make sure that I know what's going on prior to getting to this point, because there's, there's probably, there's always going to be clues, you know, Um, and and sometimes we can, we can see them and and we can kind of head things off before they get to a point where it's a fire drill. You're listening to Elle here. I hope that you're hearing there. This isn't just an analogy of of fire drills that things don't have to burn to the ground and they don't (laughs) have to just call somebody to help clean up the mess. If we'll partner earlier, there's help available. And it's the classic mistake that probably if I had to say, what's the most frequent mistake I see, it's exactly what you're saying is that we call our HR partners way too late. We're frustrated. We're, you know, just at our wits end. It just, and I want your help getting rid of this person. Well, sorry, (laughs) A, if when you're feeling that way as a leader, you haven't done your job. And if you call L sooner, yeah. There's an opportunity for everybody to learn and grow together. And maybe they're not the right person. Maybe it's a bad fit, but you'll know that in a much less frustrating way Yes. early on. But, you know, and, and you bring up such a good point because I can't tell you how many times it's happened where I get that phone call. I need to get rid of this person. And I say, you know, tell me about it. 
and, and what makes this person a quote unquote bad person for your team. And there have been so many instances where the skills that they, that they have are not really aligned to the reason you hired them. And so I, I go back to, to Jim Collins where I say, okay, so maybe what we need to do is just put this person in the right seat. Because it sounds like they're talented. It sounds like they do have the skills. We just don't have them aligned properly. And so we, we could have avoided all of this two write-ups ago <laughs> you know, by having a conversation with this person and, and seeing what we can do so that everyone's happy. And that's what, I mean, I would just, I would encourage that, you know, especially when you, when you talk about getting rid of someone who's obviously skilled and, and talented, you knew this during the hiring process, right? You know, we, we go through up to seven interviews nowadays, along with assessments. So I, I think that we should put forth the same effort into, into keeping someone before just trying to pull the plug. All right. So we're going to avoid the mistake of waiting too long. Let's build that relationship early. Let's have the conversations and, and invest together, really partner in the work mm-hmm. that we're doing. All right, so let's let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about uh, being an inclusive leader because you've got the, that expertise. It's the work that you're doing now. And so, you know, somebody's listening today going, you know, okay, I, I get it. I'm, I'm bought in. I need to be an inclusive leader. That's important for the outcomes we're trying to achieve. It's the kind of human being I want to be in the world, mm-hmm. but I'm not entirely sure how to get there. What are one or two of the starting places you would recommend that, that people do the work or have the conversation? What is it that if someone's really motivated that way and wondering, okay, what are some of my next steps? What do you recommend? I recommend finding an outside partner to help with the journey. There is so much value in having an organization who's been in the space for years and they can help you with the planning, they can help with the roadmap, and they can guide you on how not to go down all those rabbit holes without doing the necessary work first. Another thing is you have to know where your company is today. What's your starting point? It includes collecting a lot of data. And I think that is probably the hardest and longest piece of the journey is, is the discovery. And then part of that discovery would include assessing your workforce. What do your people think about the company? What has their experience you know, been like? And you do have to, you know, whatever method you choose, it's important to make sure that those in the company who are underrepresented, those voices have to be heard. And transparency is, is so important by saying, you know, you fall into this category and we need to know what it's like to be you at this company. And it just goes a long way. I think, I think transparency is something that, that we're just missing a lot of in today's organizations. Mm-hmm. And so if you're an executive and have that level of corporate responsibility for your organization or your, or your department, those are some steps you can take to get started. And I'm curious, L, because we have a number of, of leaders listening who are 
maybe they're a frontline leader or a middle-level manager. Or, and I'm wondering for them, if you have any recommendations, let's take the, the idea of transparency and listening, mm-hmm. the practical ways to go about doing that. And I don't want to like, I'm not trying to make it overcomplicated because mm-hmm. I think there are some very practical ways that people can start to go there. I'm curious if you have any perspective there. I've had a number of conversations with different managers that are on the front lines, supervisors that are managing teams. And it's a common question. What can I do today before we invest in this program? And one of the things that that I would encourage is to start having conversations about it. When you're having the one-on-ones with your staff, start having those conversations and bring things up. One of the things that was really telling when George Floyd was killed, there were so many people in the workplace, and I'm speaking primarily Black and African-American. I'm connected with quite a few, and a lot of the feedback was, no one said anything to me. My manager or my supervisor expected me to show up at this meeting (laughs) like, nothing happened. No one checked in on me. No one said, hey, how are you? And so I think if we can just start having those conversations, I think that is a good step. Now, having those conversations means that you're going to have to be okay with being uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable. It is uncomfortable to say, hey, I'm asking you this question because you're Black, (laughs) you know, or I'm asking you this question because you're a woman, or I'm asking you this question because you have said that you're part of the gay community. We have to be okay with being uncomfortable so that we can really get the information we need to do better. And then learn how to engage your team. Another, another thing that we were talking about in a recent event is when you are having a meeting, make sure every voice is heard, not by calling people out, but encouraging everyone to speak up and doing that touch point at the end and, and asking, how are you feeling? Getting the feedback that you need and encouraging engagement in meetings is really important right now. Those are, every... those are a few of the, of the things I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> well, those are incredibly powerful and, and you have sparked so many thoughts. You know, one is a friend of mine, uh, he's a doctor, uh, a family physician um, and serves on all kinds of national health boards and so on, but policymaking and he's black. He lives in the U.S. And about five weeks after George Floyd was killed, we were talking and having the, you know, how are you conversation? And he said, I'm not well. He said, but what's really interesting, he said, I just shifted roles. They reorged and I got a new manager. And she texted me last night and we talked. And so last night, this was a Sunday night that she reached out to him. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm reaching out for two reasons. One is I want to make sure you're prepared for tomorrow's meeting. So, you know, just a normal managerial touch point. Mm-hmm. She said, the other reason is, how are you? I just want to see how you're doing. Yeah. Implied in the, how are you doing? And he understood. And he said, and, you know, David, this was so interesting to me because it was uncomfortable for me. I'm a black man, but I didn't want to have to be asked. 
and yet I'm not well. So it was appropriate. <laughs> he said, but the other thing that was fascinating, and this gets to the point you're making, El, he said, I know that had to be uncomfortable for her. Oh, yeah. A uh, mm-hmm. white woman. It was the person who was his leader at that point. He said, but we need to have those conversations. She needed to have that discomfort. I needed to have that discomfort. Mm-hmm. And it made it better. And he said, but here is the fascinating thing. He's 40 plus. First time in my professional career, anybody has ever asked that question in those circumstances. Oh, wow. He said, and so I am moved and frustrated and furious, Mm -hmm. you know, and all of the (laughs) above, because seriously, my heart breaks for him that he's never in a professional setting had somebody asked that. Just like you were saying that you've heard that from so many voices of, Mm -hmm. of how, how on earth? So starting with just some basic human conversations that yeah. are going to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And this is how you really transition from inclusivity to belonging. When people can recognize that, yes, there are different people at the table, their needs are different, and we have to tap into those needs. And sometimes it means checking in when you see that things happen. I, I hear a lot that some leaders are uncomfortable when it comes to the politics, quote unquote, politics outside of the workplace. And I, I think what, what we need to consider is that this is a social thing. This is social change. It all spills over, it all bleeds into the workforce one way or another. Yeah. And it's, this is where it, it begins. This is where the healing begins. Corporations, companies, and businesses, the onus is on us to change things. And we're not going to change it until we start having those conversations, until yeah. we start talking to each other. It's so critical. And I applaud her for, you know, despite being uncomfortable, just asking the question. And sometimes that's all you need to do. How are you doing? Yeah. Extending that human, that human touch and that human connection, Mm -hmm. you know, and then I I want to capture the second thing you said that I think is also vital, which is the inviting people. You said, don't call them out, but let's call people into the conversations and ensure that voices are heard that uh, ensure that when, you know, the classic, uh, somebody, you know, who female or a person of color says something and it's discounted or ignored. And then the white guy says it, you know, and then it's off to the race, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that as a leader, we're calling attention. We're paying attention and ensuring that we are elevating, equalizing the mm-hmm. voices in the room. And it's not just, I mean, A, it's just a good thing. Let's just from a pure, like, I want to be a decent human being. Like, it's a good thing to do for that reason. But there are Beyond that, the benefit of all those different perspectives and experiences mm-hmm. and better decisions, better yeah. outcomes if we'll do that. Yeah, I think what, what happens, you find that this is easier to do once you've created a safe space. And I know that it's, it's a topic that leaders are talking more about. But I know that there's, there's definitely a lot more work 
to be done here. You know, when I, when I hear people say, you know, I don't speak up in meetings because I don't want to be, you know, yelled at or humiliated. If you are saying that as a white male, I guarantee that feeling that sentiment is going to be even more for a female, for a minority or, or anyone else that falls in an underrepresented group. Absolutely. And so there's definitely work to be done there. Well, and it's like we say in courageous cultures, right? If people are having to use up all of their courage just to show up to work, I mean, forget about <laughs> yeah. innovation or problem solving or, or raising your hand to contribute, like forget about all that. You got to solve this stuff first. If you were to truly have a culture and a team that's innovating and solving problems and advocating for your customer and all that, like this is core fundamental to high performing teams. And so- mm-hmm. Uh, I encourage you take these, you've got a couple of practical things that you can do. And even if they're uncomfortable, the best thing you can do is just start, just get yourself in motion. You'll learn as you'll make some mistakes, but get yourself in motion and, and get moving and you and your team will benefit from it. So Elle, thank you for sharing those with us. I want to shift our conversation a little bit to when you think of human resource professionals as a profession, what is one thing that you wish leaders and managers understood about you or, or your profession? This is your chance. You've got yeah. a platform. <laughs> I think the common complaint that I hear amongst a number of HR professionals is that we do have business acumen. <laughs> we do understand how to strategically approach meeting the bottom line. We understand that from a holistic viewpoint, your people is what's going to make you successful. So if you have changes that you want to make, if, if there are, you know, projects and, you know, you're putting teams together, if you're restructuring your organization, these are things we can look at holistically and say, maybe you could try this because this is what I see around the corner. And I think if more leaders understood that, the HR professionals would be brought to the table more often. We usually have a seat at the table, but it's, it's typically, you know, for those monthly meetings and financial updates, but it's not usually during the planning process which is so crucial. So crucial. And you have so much expertise and awareness and knowledge to bring if people will get you that information and upfront. You are not the first person in this series to say that. So hopefully listeners, you're listening and going, okay, as I'm thinking, as I'm planning, let's get strategic and let's bring all the folks who can help us get where we're going into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not even about needing an answer. Sometimes it's just sharing. Just, you know, when you just need to do a brain dump, you know, it's, it's great to do that with your business partner, because I promise you, we're taking notes <laughs> and, and we are going to get a really good understanding of what your vision is. And then we'll be there to support you. And, and we keep our ears to the ground so that you are informed. So I think when it comes to having an ally to make sure that you're successful, your HR professional really is that person but you got to engage them. Got to engage them. And you have your 
not just your ear to the ground, but you sit in the intersection of all the different aspects of the business. Mm -hmm. So it's a unique opportunity. You're not just an ally. It's an ally who understands everything that's happening and some of the best ways to advocate and, and help position some of the work you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a great thing about, about being in these roles because we get the view from all angles, whereas, you know, some leaders, they have their organization, their teams, and, you know, sometimes it can, it can create a tunnel vision and we see it all and we can sometimes connect the dots and help them connect the dots a lot easier. Fantastic. Well, we are coming towards the end of our time, Ellen. I, I want to thank you so much for being here. But I, before we, we wrap up, I want to ask you, as you reflect on your career thus far, mm-hmm. what has been one of the most rewarding aspects of your work and, and the work that you've done within human resources or inclusion and any, any of it? What has been most rewarding for you? The most rewarding for me is when I can recognize talent in an individual, align them in a position that I know will make them soar. And to have someone come back and say, I didn't think I could do that, <laughs> but thank you for believing in me. Mm. That, that is probably the most reward or, or rewarding experience that I've had being an HR professional. It's the Mm. reward of engaging, if you will. Mm. That is so powerful. I love that. And there is that leadership element of that, that seeing what somebody's potential is, what they're capable of and helping Mm -hmm. them to grow into that for themselves. Uh, I hope that everyone listening realizes you have that ability too, to do what Elle was just describing as one of the most rewarding aspects of her work. That's something you can do too. Good stuff. L, any final thoughts as you're thinking about leaders, managers, their intersection with human resources, anything you'd want people to know? What else would you share with us? You know, I, I think the last thing that, that I want people to know is that if diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging is not on your radar, get there <laughs> because it's happening and it is creating some beautiful things. And I think we are going to be in a great place for social change over the next three to five years. And we don't want anyone to get left behind. Of course, people can get dragged through, you know, they can get dragged along the journey, but it's, it's a lot better when all of us are enthusiastic about the changes that we can make together. So if it's something that you haven't started, I highly encourage connecting with a firm, connecting with a a professional in that space to help you move the needle the way that, that we know will happen over the course of the next few years. And if your organization isn't there, you've got the opportunity to do that individually too. And Mm -hmm. so positive change, it takes one person at a time and you can be that person. So I would absolutely second and and invite you on that journey because when you do that, when you are leading that way, you're on the way to being the leader that you'd want your boss to be. 
Eli, thank you so much for being with us and for sharing your experience, your wisdom and your own vulnerability and, and challenging us all to step up to the leadership that the world needs today. Thank you. David, thank you so much for having me. All right. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>